Welcome to Tilting at Windmills with your host, Mike Donahue. Hey, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast, Tilting at Windmills, with myself, Mike Donahue. And I think we're especially lucky today to have a pretty knowledgeable and experienced guest, certainly far more than myself, and that's Dr. Martha Rampton of Pacific University, who is the founder and director of the Center for Gender Equity. Her focus is on feminism and medieval history, specifically the roles of feminism over time. You may know her from a paper, short paper she published regarding the four waves of feminism. So definitely an expert in her field. And we're very grateful that she took the time to be here today. Welcome, Doctor. Thank you very much. So happy to be here. So can we start? Because I'm an I am not a very sharp person and I'm I'm a little bit not I'm not well versed. So if you had to give me a a definition of feminism currently, is there a way that you can it seems like such a wide topic, like it's such a there's so much that it can encompass, but do you have a elevator pitch on what feminism is? I do, that I've used many times. And I think it's somewhat distinctive, although I see this concept being used more and more. So feminism is a term that, as you know, developed in the 60s. And I would not use that term before the 60s. And I can explain that later if you like. But in the 60s, really, the focus of it was the promotion of the rights of of women and girls. So the focus was decidedly on women. But the word has evolved over time. And the way uh, I and I think others as well would describe it as it's uh, about gender equity. So although the word is feminism, and that may seem to imply somehow, a, you know, a preference or a focus on women, that is not the way I envision the word. And there's a lot of people who really detest the word feminism, although they're very supportive of women's rights. And that's something that over the years, I and, you know, some of those who work with me are trying to correct and help people feel that the word feminism does, in fact, embrace a broader swath of people. Really, it's about gender equity for everybody. Okay, so the Neanderthal in me goes, oh God, another set of words to know and and not say. And I'd, I'd like to bring up gender equity and, and the subject of genders later. But if just for the beginning, can you, I, I was fascinated by your article about the four waves of feminism. Can you kind of recap that or can you let our folks know what what your thoughts are on on how feminism has evolved over literally millennia? Sure. Um, The article starts with some people who lived, you know, uh, not in the modern era. People like Jane Austen that are well known. Mary Wollstonecraft is well known. I mean, my article goes back beyond that to the Middle Ages, but I don't think I want to deal with that. And the first focus of the women's rights movement, and I'm hesitant to call this feminist, I can explain in a minute, is the historian in me that doesn't want to use words anachronistically. So in the period that I'm talking about, about early 1800s, the focus was on education for women. And certainly the word feminism wouldn't be used, and even the term women's rights wasn't used. So um, the women who were working with the goal of improving women's education 
were not even thinking so much of women in the workplace, but they were thinking of uh, women educated who could then pass that on to their children. I think uh, Abigail Adams is another one of those people. So that was that was not really one of the um, periods that we call a wave. So what a lot of people would call the first wave of feminism, and, and I do as well, again, I wouldn't label it feminism. And the reason why is that the people involved wouldn't have called it feminism. It was uh, women's rights. And specifically, they were looking at uh, suffrage, at voting rights. And in 1902, um, the Seneca Falls Convention met, and the goals were articulated. And so by 1920, women had the vote, and so the whole movement kind of died away. So there were very specific goals that they were looking at. And then in the 1960s, the movement started that I would begin to call feminism because that's what it was called at the time by the people involved. And that goes about from the 1960s to the 1990s. And that's the period of feminism that most people would understand. And their focus was, well, on general rights for women, but very, well, two specific things. One is you know, control of the body, sexual freedom, um, you know, the pill had sort of come into the population, that sort of thing. And then also the Equal Rights Amendment was important to that group. And, you know, I can go into more detail about them, but they're a wild and wonderful group. Actually, I was part of that wave, so I guess I think they were wild and wonderful. But it was a really creative era and an era where um, issues were being brought up, you know, that hadn't before. Anyway, that ends in about the 1990s, vaguely. And then there's a third wave of feminism, and I guess it was starting in the, in the 90s. I actually put it a little bit later with the millennials. And that's pretty interesting because these are men and women who really reject the notion of feminism as it was understood in the second wave. And they didn't like the word feminism. And basically, they felt that the goals of the, of the you know, feminists of the 90s had been met. And so although these folks were, you know, supportive of women's rights, they rejected a lot of what their mothers and grandmothers had fought for. And the notion was, you guys go too far. You know, that's old. We've accomplished our goals. And in the uh, second wave of feminism, there was a rejection of uh, lipstick and bras, you know, and the typical sort of feminine things, because it was thought that, you know, women are just trying to appeal to men. But in the third wave, all that comes back. So there's a, a general disdain a little bit, or maybe a grudging respect in the second wave, or sorry, in the third wave for the second. But I have identified a fourth wave. And now that term's being sort of used a lot, fourth wave, fifth wave. And I, I think I'm one of the first ones to talk about a fourth wave, excuse me. And these are the students or the, you know, the people who are sort of 20 to 25 now. And it's interesting because they tend to be embracing the goals of the second wave. Again, their grandmothers. And they're respectful of that group. They're joiners. Um, in many cases, they don't know, uh, mind the word feminism. Most important of all, they see feminism in this broader context. It's about men. It's about women. It's about uh, various genders. Um, so it's very, very inclusive. So that's kind of a, a broad outline of what I see as the four waves. So, so all those waves are modern, but if we talk about deep history, you know, dark ages and, and before, are there notable instances of, again, they wouldn't have called it feminism, but they might have called it women's rights or 
something like that in, in Roman times or other examples? Boy, they're hard to come by um, when they're articulated like, you know, they weren't wouldn't have been called women's rights, for instance. But there are some uh, figures. One is a woman named Cornelia, and she was uh, real important in the Roman Republic. And she was active in public and doing a lot of things women generally don't. But she always had to frame it in terms of her family. So for a long time, I would say even to the 60s, through you know the period where women were educa- interested in education and votes, if it was framed through the family, we want to be educated so we can be better mothers, et cetera, then it was acceptable. So this woman, Cornelia, was able to take a... a part in public life because she was doing it on behalf of her sons. So that was a a way women sometimes got around that. And there's a woman named Christine de Passan, and I've read a bunch of articles recently about feminism, and she's often mentioned. She lived in the 15th century, and she talked specifically about the rights of women, but that's about it. So you had extraordinary women, but most women accepted the paradigm. And um, it's interesting because both men and women saw the female as inferior, and that was really related to her body. They thought the female body was inferior. And so no one questioned that very much. But there are instances, right, of older societies than ours allowing women the right to vote. And are there instances of matriarchal societies? Yeah, there are matriarchal societies, but there wouldn't have been anything like a vote. That's a very modern sort of thing. And usually, you know, we have monarchies, so there's no voting. But there's a real interesting society in Crete. Uh, Crete is an island off Greece, and it flourished about 2000 BCE. It called the Minoans. It's absolutely fascinating and was definitely a, a matriarchy. And so power went through the w- woman and inheritance went through the woman. So that's one example. And then there's probably, I think there's lots of examples that maybe aren't in my field that I don't know about in Western Europe. Ancient Egypt gave women a lot of power and authority. Again, it wouldn't have been anything like voting, but women were pretty uh, independent in ancient Egypt, very much so. And then in Rome, to some extent, not in Greece, though. In Greece, women were relegated to the home. They really had no rights at all. And then in the Middle Ages, it's a long period. It's about a thousand-year period, and there's lots of different areas. But I wouldn't say you, you could look anywhere for anyone who would really be talking about women's rights. Got it. Got it. No, that, that concept of equity is also a word much like feminism, I think equity is a word that has a lot of potential nuance and a lot of potential different definitions. How would you define equity? Well, that's a really good question. And I like what sort of what you're starting to say before is the recognition of we can't really use a modern term and slap it onto the past. That really distorts what people were doing and thinking in the past. And, I, you know, I think you're getting at that, and I appreciate that. But about the word equity, early, and I mean, not that early, you know, when I started the Center for Gender Equity, everybody was wondering why we don't use the word equality. And we rejected that word because equality has the sense of sameness. And we don't see that as an important thing. We don't think 
the gender should be the same. And we don't think, you know, men and women, although that's not the only gender, should be the same. And um, we're happy to have diversity in the society. But equity means fairness. And so it's it's really important, I think, the difference between sameness and fairness. And a lot of people who are nervous about the word feminism have said, we don't want the differences to go away. We think, you know, women shacked in one way and men in another. And although I wouldn't go that far, I think it's important that we give people uh, the um, latitude to do the kinds of things they want. And if there's a woman who wants to wear, you know, high heels, makeup, bras, and act in a way that we would typically consider, you know, feminine, that's fine. In other words, Let's embrace diversity, but certainly we want fairness. And so that's the reason the word equity is so important. So I think that's a, I mean, that's a huge explanation or it's a huge sort of definition that I don't think, or it's an application of the word that I don't think quite often gets conveyed when in sort of the general public discourse, right? So in my head, and I'm just going to, this is the whole thing thought behind this podcast is tell Mike why he's wrong. So you're going to have a a lot of chances to tell me why I'm wrong on a number of things here. But I think a lot of times people that aren't really in the arena, they hear about equity or or even equality, and they just assume that it's just a one-to-one relationship, right? That there's no, that there shouldn't be that distinction of we are, yes, we are different. There doesn't seem to be a wanting of, especially in some of the, I think more some of the more vocal folks that are out there is that there there isn't that this is a terrible phrase and it has a terrible history, but that whole separate but equal connotation, if if that makes sense, that we are, you know, we just need to be on a the level playing field and but we are different. We have strengths and weaknesses of our own. But it doesn't, it doesn't always feel like that, I think, to the uninitiated. It doesn't always feel like that's what's being conveyed. It's being conveyed that we are just the same and we need to go forward just, as just the same. Yeah, that you're absolutely right. And I think that's an enormous hurdle to get over. And of course, when I speak, I'm speaking from the point of view you know, of a professor and someone who studies this academically. And so I understand that some of my interpretations would be interpretations that people who don't study this wouldn't exactly have. But I would say that virtually everybody who keeps up with this and pays attention would agree that we don't want everyone to be the same. This um, There's a woman, actually, that I quoted in my article, and what she, she said, um, it's possible to have a push-up bra and a brain at the same time. So that's pretty important to me and lots of folks who are talking about feminism now is that we don't try and homogenize people. That's not the goal at all. And when you talked about an even playing field, I'd love to send you this visual, although I know you can't share it. But I wouldn't say that we do necessarily want an even playing field. And what I'm saying is that we want equity, but sometimes equity means some people get more until there is equity. Do you know what I mean? In other words, I would be really happy to, I'm happy to see women's programs and girls' programs and money going into sort of girls going to college, et cetera, women going to college, because I think there has been inequity in the past. So it's not about sameness, but to even get to fairness, there needs to be some 
I'm going to use the word reparations, but I don't need financially. Let me tell you a little bit about this graphic. I think it might make some sense. In the graphic, there's a fence, and there's uh, people looking over the fence. And one of them is a real tall guy, and he can see over the fence fine. Another one is shorter, and if he steps on his tiptoes, he can sort of see over. And then the third one is really short, and he can't see over at all. And so, um, but they're all there at the same fence, can look at the same thing if they could see it. Well, that's equality. They're all on a level playing field. Equity's different. And so the guy who's really short gets to step on boxes so he can look over. The guy that's, uh, you know, the middle one, he's on a box too, he can look over. So that's the difference. So level playing field isn't exactly the way we'd think about it, nor is equality per se. So equity is an absolutely fabulous word. And I think if people, like you say out there, who don't study this, aren't very familiar, if you just say feminism is really about gender equity or gender fairness, I don't think too many people would think that that was a poor idea. So we're talking about, if I can try and rephrase this a bit, and I, I've been watching a lot of Jordan Peterson lately, which is going to make everybody out there scream a little bit. <laughs> so you're talking about when in a broader picture, you're talking about the equality of the results, but not the equality of opportunity. Well, uh, you know, I hate to be too picky, but just the whole word equality just doesn't fit into the equation. It doesn't. The fairness sort of of results, not the equality exactly. I mean, for instance, maybe I'm misunderstanding the word equality in the terms that you're talking about, but let's say we're looking at, at scholarships for people to go to college. So equality would mean, you know, if you're talking about men and women, they'd all get equal. Equity would mean you might have some specific scholarships for women that men can't get, okay? Although college is a real bad idea right now because uh, there's more women in college than there are men. That's a crisis for men, uh, actually. They're not going to college. They're not graduating from college in the same numbers. I mean, so this is a different topic, but I think men are in crisis in our society in some ways more than women. And that equality thing, I see it the same way when we talk about race, actually, that some of the you know black and brown folks they need extra help, the extra scholarships, whatever. Not They don't need equality. They need equity. Right. Got it. And I think, but I, I think um, there is a large segment of, forgive the generalization, but the, the white middle-aged folks out there who see the efforts to attain equity as a threat or unfairness to them. They don't understand why their son or daughter can't get that scholarship. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I think you're absolutely right. And I've sort of have two thoughts about that. Some people who uh, oppose gender equity or, you know, racial equity, it's just because, you know, they're, they're, they're afraid of the privilege being taken away and... You know, I think that's something that we really have to look at, but they feel like it's a zero-sum game. And if somebody uh, benefits, then somebody has to lose. And so if women begin to benefit, men lose. So that's one reason. But I think the second one you mentioned is that, you know, maybe some parents of a white guy um, wonder why he didn't get the scholarship and there was more emphasis on the female. I 
think they're right to be concerned. And if one were to talk to me and I were to talk about equity, I think that parent might say, well, you know, we need the scholarship too. And my son worked hard in college and he's not getting this. So I think we really have to look at society writ large. And this isn't a very satisfactory answer for you other than saying, I get why they would feel that way. And you can explain to that, you know, those parents, here's what we're trying to do. Here's what we're trying to accomplish. And I don't think that would be very comforting to them. No, I think I think the road answer to that is that we're we're for so long, all the scholarships were for men only. The concept of a woman's scholarship is relatively new, and we're trying to compensate for that historic lack of education for women. And I think there's a validity to that argument. I just don't think that argument goes over very well with those parents. Yeah, I don't either. And then building on what you said. And so much of this actually applies to race, too, is when you're talking about evening the playing field in terms of historically, I would say that, at least for me, I don't even care about historically. I mean, women were disadvantaged. That's not great, but they were. So let's move past that. I'm talking about current disadvantages. So I wonder if those parents understood more some of the, you know, statistics about women's education, some of the hurdles they have to overcome now and not see it as somehow redressing uh, former ills. I I wonder if they would understand more. Now, college actually probably isn't the best example because, like I said, women are actually favored now in college uh, in, in some fields. But it's in the job market where the disparity is absolutely despicable. And I think those kinds of statistics would be more meaningful. But to those parents, I I don't I don't have a good answer. I would feel the same way. But I guess to the society, larger society, it, it's for the good of the larger society. Got it. So we are we are in the, just in the last 5 minutes, we've we've touched on a number of very sort of sensitive areas, right? Racial items, gender items, etc. And, and there does feel like there's a bit of a wave going on, especially through our university system, where we are tiptoeing, and especially yourself, and I definitely don't want you to put yourself in any sort of, you know, controversial area, but do you feel like there's a bit of thought policing going on in the, in the most minor of levels? Oh, I think there's thought policing going on in the major levels. And I think universities are the worst offenders. And I want to defend the university initially. I mean, universities, generally speaking, is that they have kept, you know, feminism alive at a period when it had really receded. And they're responsible for people thinking outside of the box. And they've had such a positive influence on society. But I think it's becoming a little bit dangerous now so that people don't feel like they can think broadly. I mean, you know, I've had several examples actually where people have have criticized me and the Center for Gender Equity uh, for some of our focuses and some of the things that we're not doing. And let me give you an example. You you know the term uh, microaggression, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So I think that's a really important term, and I think people should be aware of when they're, you know, uh, microaggressing against people. On the other hand, 
it's not a person's right not to be offended. And sometimes by, you know, offending, not hurting, but offending people, you sort of get them outside of their comfort zone and they learn something. So the Center for Gender Equity often has programming that's well, abrasive to some people, offensive to some people, um, to others not, to others it's freeing. And there's there's criticism about that. But yeah, I'm I'm sort of on your same wavelength. And both my husband also works at the university. Both he and I are concerned about this sort of thing. I mean, I don't have any problem if people express their opinion about terminology, but it's when, you know, this sort of veil comes down and there's certain things you can't talk about. I think one of the most serious problems is at a lot of universities, right wing, middle of the road, or let's say sort of traditional white men or whatever, often don't dare express their opinion. And you see this in classes as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm concerned. I'm really concerned about this. But I, would, I might say that that's generational. The certainly the the quote unquote millennial, not maybe not even where we are now, the Gen Z, that the Gen Z folks see that purely as hate speech, right? It's very easy to get something lumped into quote unquote hate speech, and I think there is a generational disconnect there where people of like your mind generation and and around ours are concerned about the drift of things, but I see very little angst about the restrictions on public discourse amongst that Gen Z demographic. Oh, really? You mean the current generation? Correct. The current the current generation that's in the universities. They don't seem to mind that stuff can be labeled as hate speech and then is then verboten from oh, engagement. Yeah, I, I agree with you. But what's difficult, as you indicated, is what's hate speech and what's just difference of opinion. So um, in, you know, 2016, when uh, Donald Trump was elected, um, you know, being in a typical university, everyone was horrified and tearing their hair out and weeping. And, you know, I have to say I was weeping too, so I just want to explain where we're coming from. But the people who supported and voted for Donald Trump, I think they felt like they had to go into hiding almost. I don't think they would want to admit that. And I don't think that's healthy. I don't think it's healthy. So I think we do need to divide hate speech from you know, people who express themselves and don't exactly have the terminology. So I want to talk about LGBTQ on that and trans specifically. A lot of people don't dare really talk about transgender or, you know, trans folk or to them because they don't know the terminology and they're really afraid of offending. And I think that's dangerous and I think it's 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 wrong. So I I think we scared people. I think people have become a little bit scared about language. So by all means, I think we should examine our language and avoid hate speech. But um, I don't think we should just toss everything into that barrel of hate speech because it might offend somebody. Again, I'm back to that word offend. I don't think people have the right not to be offended. Okay, wait, I have to think that one through. They don't have the right not to be offended? Yeah. So, for instance, the Center for Gender Equity, um, for years we put on vagina monologues mm-hmm. and we put posters up. And then some folks said, well, we, we shouldn't put up the post. In fact, we weren't allowed to put posters up last time we did it. You shouldn't do that because I find it offensive. And I think, okay, 
I don't care if they find it offensive as long as it's not hurtful. Um, sometimes it's not a bad thing to be offended. So it sounds like I'm kind of insensitive. But what I'm trying to say is if people are going to expand their thinking and expand their minds and expand their experience, sometimes they need to interact with things that aren't natural to them or that kind of offend them. I mean, I did. You know, I'm I'm not gender, uh, definitely not a millennial, but... And it took me a while to get used to the way my students were talking. And I was super offended by my students when I first started the Center for Gender Equity. But then being around them and understanding that the way they're using terminology doesn't mean the same thing to them as it does to me. I mean, you know, I wasn't offended anymore. So that's what I mean by if somebody says I'm offended by this, I think you need to really think about what that word means. I'm just, so much is running through my head. I Tell me to stop if you want to. No, 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 it's great. We have a, at Pacific, we have a, um, a writing program, a master's writing program. And the woman who uh, directs that came to me a few years ago. And she said, I, I really have a problem. And she said, I have students in class who think that we shouldn't read certain books and, and talk about certain books because they deal, in this case, it was about homophobia. And it's offensive, they said to them, and they don't want to promote that. And so they were saying certain literature shouldn't be read. And in fact, that they would leave the program if those things were taught and the professors, you know, shouldn't write their own poetry that could be perceived as homophobic. That's what I mean by people don't have the right not to be offended. So when you're starting to censor literature, you know, because it contains ideas or terminology that are offensive to you. I think as a society, we need to talk about that. Well, I don't even know if we should talk about it. We just shouldn't do it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, let me turn the tables on you for a minute. Oh, gosh. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, this isn't fair. Okay. But you did say we shouldn't have hate speech. Well, I don't, I don't see, no, no, I don't know that that's my position. I think, I think, to me, there's a very, that, that bar of quote unquote dangerous speech, you know, the, the fire and the theater stuff, the, anything that, where the first amendment comes into play, I think it has to be a very, very high bar. So if I'm out there with a megaphone saying we got to go around and, you know, shoot up schools or whatever, then that's crossing a line. Fire in a crowded theater, that's crossing a line. But, but I think, I think, I, I think we've lost sight of of how high that bar needs to be before we start clamping down on it. Yeah, I do too. Now, one thing I wouldn't tolerate, actually, is, you know, racial slurs or gender slurs. So, you know, the N-word, for instance, if somebody used that or or other kinds of, um, you know, terminology to refer to, to women's bodies, men's bodies, races, that's, that's hate speech, I think. That's so destructive. But um, do you, what do you think about that? Well, I think it means, I think it depends on what the repercussions are. I think if you're talking about making it illegal to say the N-word or to call, let's say, a trans woman he, right? I think if you're talking about making those illegal, I I have concerns about that. Yeah, I do too. (laughs) And, you know, just sort of go along with what you're saying. At my university, I don't know how happy they would be to hear me saying this stuff. They wanted to have a speech code. 
And, uh, you know, they came to me because I run the Center for Gender Equity. And I guess they thought I would approve of that. And, you know, I was pretty horrified. I think the way that you monitor and police language is you do it sort of internal, or not internally, but you do it within the group. And so certain terminology becomes so unacceptable, not because it's policed or outlawed, that people who use that terminology, you know, won't be included, whatever. So I think we, I think in terms of speech, except for what you're talking about, like screaming fire in a crowded theater. I think that's a cultural thing that is policed by the people in their culture. And it doesn't matter how much you outlaw it. That isn't the point. The point is not to outlaw the speech. The point is to rid the society and the community of the hate behind the speech. Yeah, but... I, I guess I struggle a bit with that. So one of the podcasts I did recently was with a transgender activist and it was a great discussion. We spent probably 20 minutes of it talking about the pronouns and proper use of pronouns. And I just came away from it thinking, you know, you're, you're in a situation where you're not getting equal access to healthcare. You're in a situation where you're being denied housing rights that the rest of us enjoy there are all these incredibly substantive issues and, but we're talking about pronouns. It feels like low hanging fruit and that's why it's being grabbed at, but I'm I'm not sure it's effective. You you mean you're not sure it's effective, the pronoun they're, them, theirs? Well, the, the focus on pronouns, it feels like the, the focus is on things. And even like, you know, the let's just take the N-word again. We can't even say the N-word. I wouldn't want to say the N-word. No. <laughs> but, you know, again, you know, during the civil rights in the 60s, it was like, we need to be able to vote, right? It wasn't about don't use the n-word I, f- I feel like we're we're a little bit backwards in in what the focus is right it's like let's let's get to basic fairness and then let's work through the pronoun stuff yeah okay the pronoun stuff is very interesting in fact i have a little thing i want to read that a student wrote and to me that's not low-hanging fruit in other words I think, you know, whatever pronoun one wants to use, I think it's really important that people understand the preferred pronoun for a person and then use that. Now, if they don't know what the person's pronoun is, they just see a person, you know, who may uh, present as a woman and they call her she, then, you know, that what can you do? But once a person identifies the pronoun that, that they prefer, I think people should use it. Even if it's awkward, can I read this one little one little thing that my student wrote? Trans, a trans person. Hang on. All right. He says, so if somebody, you know, you tell somebody, oh, my pronouns are they, or if it's a person who presents as a female but actually is a male, in other words, trans, but in every way looks like a female. And there's, you know, plenty of those. It doesn't, you don't have to look like a male to be a male, right? You don't have to go through the surgery and stuff. Anyway, uh, this guy says, it looks, if you tell a person and the person says, I understand what you want, I just don't care. My convenience is more important than your identity. And then that was a quote. She said, often when just existing in a public space, people are casually misgendering. So when you are informed of uh, someone's pronouns and you choose to ignore them, you're adding to the microaggression they are forced to experience throughout the day. 
And so that's my point is use the pronoun. If somebody wants you to use a particular pronoun, you know, use it. Sometimes it's pretty hard to get used to. I have a terrible time getting used to it. And I know so many gay folks from, you know, professors to students to people who aren't connected with the university. And in every case, those people have told me that as long as people try, they're good. So try to use they, for instance. I had a student and, oh, my gosh, uh, they, uh, like the most beautiful sort of girl, you know, looked like one. I say girl because she was young. And it was very hard for me, uh, you know, to use he because um, this person was a he. But it's up, it's on me. It's on me to do it. So I, I guess there I think language is important, but I certainly wouldn't want anything like policing or well, that's I guess that's the that's the ultimate question, right? So if if a transgender person has a coworker and they transition during their time and they're a trans woman and the coworker just continues to call them he, right? They and they say, No, you know, please she her, and they just keep calling them he, is that person A just kind of a dick? Or B, are they a criminal? Well, they're definitely a dick. But I, I would hope that, it, there, that there was a middle ground there where, you know, the trans person talks to the boss, you know, can you do something? Can we rectify this? Something like that. The person's not a criminal, just a dick. But a lot of people would classify that as hate speech. Really? Yes. Wow. Well. By misgendering someone intentionally. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That's a tough one. Um, I think our society needs, a, and I guess that's what we're doing now, a sustained discussion by what we mean about that. Wow. I didn't actually know that. I've never heard mispronouncing somebody as hate speech. I can see where it's interpreted that way. If somebody just absolutely refuses to use, you know, the proper pronoun. I mean, so I come from a really conservative family and I'm married, but I maintained my uh, maiden name. And my family was appalled by that. And they won't use, you know, they call me uh, Mrs. Smith. They won't use Rampton. And, you know, I, I just laugh, but that's fine because it's not anything like being trans where it's really totally about your identity. So I, I wouldn't call it hate speech, but uh, I think it's important. I think that people should be educated about how hurtful that is to people. It's not just rude, it's really hurtful. So in, in that vein, can we talk about the concept of TERFs? I've heard, I'm sure you've heard that acronym um, for those of you who have not TERF is a trans-exclusionary radical feminist, which just is a cornucopia of buzzwords that just make my makes my head explode. Can you, I, I, I guess that's a thing now. Any thoughts on that situation where, I, and basically I think to break it down, it's, it's um, feminists who don't feel that trans women have the same life experience and claim to the same movement that they do? Is that, I think that's it? Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Well, I'll be, you know, I, I hate to devalue these labels and, and people who use them. It it may mean different things than it does to them. And I, I don't want to be disrespectful. I don't know about that term, um, but I want to take that in a slightly different direction. It's about the binary 
and I think this kind of does relate to terror, the binary. A lot of people will say that there's sort of male, female, and then they'll class trans and non-binary together. And I think that's inaccurate, basically, because somebody who's trans is binary. I mean, that's the whole point, right? They're moving from one gender to another. I don't think it's an arbitrary move. I don't want to make it as though they're choosing. I mean, they are one gender and the body doesn't line up with that gender. But I think people have a tendency to understand, you know, gay and lesbian and even bi and everything else they'll sort of throw into one pot. And there's a lot of other gender identities that I think need to be um, respected, understood and respected. So let's talk about that and and I think there's a there's again there's another opportunity to tell me why I'm wrong here, but in in my head and my way of thinking, there are two sexes. There's two different biological conditions, and yes, there's a tiny percentage that sometimes gets both, but or is a mixture of, but they're a minuscule percentage. But when you're born, you either are XX or XY, right? And something like that. But, and whereas that situation may be binary, the gender is is not binary. It's not limited to that. Is that is that a fair description? Is that inaccurate? How would, how would you, is there, a, there's a difference in my head between sex and gender? Oh yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I'll throw in another one and that's sexuality. So no, I, I think you're right. I'm, not everybody would agree with that. They wouldn't even want you to do a binary in terms of, you know, sort of biological existence or whatever. I can't think of a very good word for that. But I would say, yeah, biologically you're you, you have genitals of a male and hormones of a male or a female, et cetera. So that would be sex. And then um, sexuality, of course, would be, you know, who you like to have uh, sex with. Or who you fall, I've actually been corrected on that. Uh, who you, It's about who you fall in love in, with, who you're attracted to. It's okay. not necessarily about sex. I, I like the, I like who you're attracted to. So that could be fall in love or sex. In other words, a lot of people might be attracted to someone. This is even sort of, you know, male, female, who they're not in love with. But attracted to seems like a really good term. So thank you for correcting me on that. And so there's that. And then there's gender. And gender really is the most interesting. And, you know, it's really sort of more or less socially constructed, although the construction of gender certainly is keyed off the biological sex. And so when we talk about transgender, that's really what it is, is transgender, not transsexual. That's an older term. And then people can be all kinds of combinations of those things. So a person, this is not uncommon for a person to be transgender male and are attracted to or want to have sex with males. No, 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 with, with women. Yeah, trans men and trans women can both be straight and gay and bi, right? They're not necessarily interlinked. I think where we get, where, where Joe Average gets thrown off is hearing that there's 37 genders. Well, okay. I think gender identity is, a. we really have to put gender identity in there. 
instead of genders. We call male and female genders, but probably we should refer to gender identity as all of those different terms. And there are a lot and they proliferate. And sometimes there's two words for the same gender identity and then they'll sort of collapse on each other. It's hard to keep up. And a lot of people say that to me, oh, it's hard to keep up. I never know what terminology to use. Therefore, I'm basically not gonna try, not gonna use any of it. And um, I don't think that's a very good way to proceed. I think you ask people, you know, if you're in a position to, what what gender identity do you prefer? And um, of course, you you don't want to say that to just people in the grocery store. And then they will tell you. (laughs) That's where I'm getting in trouble. Yeah. If we have the assumption that we do not know a person's gender by looking at them, I think we'll be pretty safe. And this is maybe going beyond what most people would want to hear or do, but I do it and it's not too difficult. When I meet people I don't know, I don't use terminology that would indicate that I think I know what their gender is. I just don't use it. It's pretty easy these days. And then if they want to reveal their gender in some way or other, that's fine. So it's not very hard to be respectful of people by not assuming that they are a particular gender, no matter how they look. You know, so uh, students, particularly lots of students who are transgender at, at you know university, they simply can't afford any of the uh, at the surgery. And so, in one case, I'm thinking of this guy would do all kinds of things. He would bind his breasts and make sure that you know that he was wearing clothes that looked masculine and wore hair that looked masculine. And he said that a straight privilege is that you can put clothes on and go out. And, and he said, I don't have that privilege. If I'm not going to be, you know, a microaggressed upon, um, he says, I have to pay attention to what I'm wearing and make sure it looks masculine and, you know, pad different parts of his body's so body. So I thought that was pretty interesting. But I guess the point I'm making is you don't know somebody's gender by looking at them. I get that. But I think, again, it's hard for me, who isn't well-educated on the subject, to imagine, I mean, I can, like in my head, right, I can think, okay, you're male, female, you're gender fluid, you know, maybe you're asexual. But when we get to my 10 fingers, I kind of feel like if you're going beyond, you know, those 10 sort of general categories, and I think even 10's a lot, like that we're just getting into silly time. Yeah, I was in, order, in preparing to talk to you. I was talking to actually a family member of mine who's kind of thinking trans and, you know, she's still a she at this point. She isn't really sure. And I asked her how she identifies and she says, uh, what did she say? Gender expansive. And I thought, okay. Um, but yeah, it is a lot. But uh what, what does it matter, really? In other words, if various people identify in various ways and sort of, you know, the average person, what difference does it make? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. And this, this gets into the white male lament of the H's and the world's tiniest violin. But just like, you know, just in, the, in, in that story you told about how men have the privilege of being able to wear whatever. I don't think, and this is the thing, we're the the straight white male out there who's now the archetype villain. And again, I'm not, I I don't 
I'm not trying to say this as a, you know, oh, woe is me thing or those folks in general. But I think there is a perception among, quote unquote, middle America that they're constantly being slapped on the wrist, that they're constantly being boxed in, that they're constantly being told you got to know about this or you can't say that or you can't do this or a, you know, you're just going to come off as an ignoramus or you're going to get canceled in some way. And I just think we've had, you know, I think, I think the country has undergone radical change in the last 20 years in terms of quote unquote waking up. And 90% of that has been great and necessary and, and super positively impactful. But I, I do think that, that you're getting a, into a bit of fatigue now. You know, I, I feel I try and be, you know, I consider myself an ally. I, I try and be as, as helpful and, and I do want to use the proper pronouns, et cetera. But when I'm told that I have privilege because I can just wear my male clothing, it sure doesn't like, like, <laughs> really? <laughs> no, okay. That's pretty interesting. Well, yeah, I'd love to respond to that. Um, actually, when he was talking, he meant everybody, not just men. But the bigger problem is, you know, men. And why not just say, I have, a, I have more trouble than the average person picking out clothes? Okay. Why, so- why is the onus now on, quote unquote, and we can't even say like, and I understand, like, I don't, I'm, I don't, I've tried to cut the word normal out of my dictionary. I don't think it's appropriate when we're talking about this thing or, or, or this subject. And me five years ago would kill me for saying this, but, but why is the onus on the cisgender privilege rather than your student just saying, crap, it's hard for me to pick out clothes? Yeah. Okay, so uh, lots of thoughts about that. I want to talk about men first. And as I said before, the Center for Gender Equity, most of our programming now is about men and masculinity studies. So I had a huge conference about, you know, masculinity studies. So men are in in real trouble. And that, uh, I don't mean because, because they're not politically correct. I mean, the society is not tending to their needs, and that's true of men and boys. And I think that, I think we, we desperately need to do that because I'm genuinely interested in gender equity. And when I say that, I really mean men too. So often gender equity comes off as a word, it's sort of a euphemism that really means women's rights. And I honestly don't see it that way. So I think those, you know, white guys that you're describing uh, who feel affronted, in my opinion, and so they should, because I don't think we've done a good job. I don't think we do a good job of talking. I don't think we've done a very good job of, I kind of hate this word, but educating or discussion better than educating, because educating has a sense of, you know, one person talking to another. But in terms of the privilege, I actually really like that word just because it's meaningful to me and it's been used in reference to me before. And the first time I heard it, it was a couple of lesbian students I had. And they said that I was privileged because I could walk down the street, you know, holding hands or putting my arm around my husband. And not only could they not do that, I mean, most places they can now, but certainly that's 20 years ago in little town of Forest Grove, that they can't do that. 
and they constantly have to be worried. They're constantly afraid of a slur or that they'll do the wrong thing and then be affronted, if not physically, verbally. And they are affronted verbally. And so a lot of uh, people with you know various gender identities, they love to go to bars, for instance, where there's just LGBTQ because they can let their guard down. And so to me, that was a meaningful word. And I... Th- Aren't we really privileged? In other words, we don't have to think about what we wear. And our behavior is normative behavior. So we don't have to think about it. So maybe it's not such a negative word, except that the way it's been used. I don't know if that's a very good explanation. It comes across, perhaps, to the men that you're talking about as sort of a put down that you're not sensitive enough. And that's unfortunate. Tell me what you think. I know I'm sort of talking in circles now. No, I, I just think middle America, and I'm, 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 please, I'm not making fun of the flyover states. I'm, I'm talking about Jill and Jane, Joe, average person. I think it's a really hard to tell someone you're privileged, in, just in general, when they certainly don't feel privileged, and just say you have inherent privileges, Right. There's there's a connotation in the word privilege where you have this easy or you have that easy. And and the very first reaction in, in most of the cases that I've seen is is a pushback. Like what like what are you talking about? You know, I'm making 40 hours of working 40, 50 hours a week. I'm barely covering my rent. You know, I graduated high school and went went for a couple of years at a JC. And I don't know that the level of discourse in the Twitter world or just the Facebook world lends itself to the nuance of explaining that concept. Because again, you are basically taking the the statement of like, like your lesbian students, I can't, we can't go do this and that's not right into you, doctor, you have privilege. Do you, do you see, do you see the, and I get it. I just wish there was a better way of communicating it that didn't make people feel so defensive. No, I see your point exactly. And and I think you're right. As you're talking, I think, I wonder how we could express that in a way, because the whole goal, I think, is communication and ultimately that we can all respect each other. So I wonder if you thought that expressing it slightly differently would make a difference I'm trying to think how we do that. So privilege has kind of become a tag word that you just use about so many things. And you throw it out there and it doesn't mean very much, right? It doesn't really communicate anymore what we want it to communicate. And I think what we want it to communicate is, or maybe I'm just talking for myself, not that the other person's done anything wrong, I'll go back to my students. Not that I've done anything wrong because I can go down the street and hold my husband's hand. I guess to just be aware of the lived experience of people who can't do that. Right. But do, do you agree in some in some ways, and I'm not trying to get you in trouble here, but the connotation of privilege, there's there's an inherent, you know, why do you have that privilege? You have this privilege that I don't, and it's somehow your fault. I think you're right. I think the word especially now does have that connotation. And, you know, I am I think you bring up a very good point. And I think the notion behind privilege is 
accurate and good and I think shocking. When when it is shocking and it makes people think, that I think that's very good. But when it's a term that just feels abrasive and so people shut down, not a good term. I want maybe feminism's the same kind of term. I don't know. I'm I'm gonna think about that, Mike. Um I think that's really I think that's really a good point. To me, the most important thing is that people like I said before, communicate and that we can get along with each other and respect each other. And terminology that gets in the way of that should be examined. Well, and I guess for my part, I think it's also important to focus on the true inequities and trying to say, how do we really move that Overton window? How do we really get to where we want to be? And and I think language is a function of that, but I don't know that it's the be all end all. But I want to bring this back to let's let's come back to normal feminism. And I I shouldn't have said normal. I'm sorry. Traditional feminism. Well now there's an example with language, you know, that's fine. I mean that would be an example if you say normal and then people get kind of upset. I think that's too bad if you feel like you have to tiptoe around that. And I understand why normal can be you know, that's the kind of word that we can talk about in the classroom and people can talk about in small groups. But if someone uses the word, you know, really, <laughs> I, I think it's sad we have. But I get it. I get it. If you're talking to a trans person and you, you're saying, you know, how does it feel when you're hanging out with normal people? Yeah, that would be really bad. <laughs> that's not That's not a good thing. Um, but let's let's get back to a bit of the safer, uh, the safer areas. And I and I do really appreciate I wasn't going to talk necessarily about some of the stuff that men are going through in terms of suicide rates, et cetera. But I just want to pick a couple of the the, the big controversial subjects in, in gender equity right now. Um, one of which is, is this concept of the pay equity and uh, women earning, you know, the you know, 78 to 87 cents. It's, it's, 80, it's 82. Okay. Now. 82 cents on the dollar. Depending though, that's, that's white women. Do you, do you want to hear the figure? I'll let you ask the question. Then I'll give you the figures for Black and, and Latinx. I've got I've got to think the Black and Latino are, are lower no, than... No, the, the Latino is the worst. 63 for Black and 55 for Latinx. So it, that is one important thing. And this may be an example of the kind of thing you're saying folks don't like. But when we talk about things like pay equity or almost anything. We need to talk about intersectionality. And is that a word you're familiar with? Intersectionality? In general, but I'm going to say let's define it for our audience. Okay. Intersectionality means that people are intersections of various sort of labels or, I don't know, realities or persons. So for instance, if you have a woman who is Latinx, she's got that intersection. Or let's say you have a woman and she's Latinx and she's gay. Or a woman and she's not gay, but, you know, she's disabled or what, or other-abled, whatever the word is now for that. So that's the intersection. So when we talk about pay gap, um, it's not 82. It's 82 for white women. So that's the intersectionality. So can we talk about that? Because I'm, I'm, I know you've done a, a ton more research. So I'm just going to throw out some of the sort of general pushback that I hear among some of my friends in terms of, you know, how much of that pay gap is due to the professions that women choose or traditionally go into? How much of that pay gap is from women who are just, you know, they're stay-at-home 
moms or, you know, how much of that pay gap is from whether it's pregnancy or women dropping out of the workforce or, or whatever, how much, how much of that is, because I think the inference again, is that this is a pay gap that's based on the male patriarchy, not wanting to pay women the same as men because they don't feel that they're inherently as worthy. And I'm, I'm cognizant of myself of several real, real world examples of, of women that I know in professional fields that get paid or were paid significantly less than their male counterparts. But I'm, I, I guess I'm trying to understand where those na- quote unquote natural factors fall into that calculation of that 82 cents. Okay, that's, yeah, I have, I've actually written a lot on this as well. I mean, it's a really good question. Often when people talk about pay gap, they're actually talking about same profession, same level in the profession, et cetera. And sometimes when people are talking about pay gap, they're talking about taking an overall average of what men and women earn, something like that. So it kind of depends. But it's fascinating because I'm going to talk about what we call the baby penalty. So one of the reasons there's this enormous pay gap is because women have children. And so a woman that's in a you know very professional, high-paying uh, job, and they tend to make about the same as men, okay, in, let's say, tech industries and things like that initially. And the level of education in men coming out for some of those very high-paying jobs is about the same. But what happens is the woman has a child, and so she needs to take some time off work. And in that time that she takes off work, there's no discrimination per se, but she's not getting the raises. She's not getting the big contracts. She's not getting sort of the informal information at the, you know, uh, water, what do they call that? The place people get water. And, And so she's falling behind without anybody intending for her to do that. And then when she goes back to work, She's behind in a variety of ways. And often women then will do what we call take the off-ramp. That these are women, actually, this happens more with women uh, who have a lot of money, that they stay home with their kids. They take the off-ramp because they see that they've fallen behind. And then if they have another baby, they fall behind again. So they lose about 5% of their earnings every time they have a child. And so a lot of women do stay home with their children. But the question is, how much of a choice is it? For some it is, for some it isn't. But that is an enormous problem. And I was reading some articles about COVID-19 and the disastrous results it's having for women because whatever progress we've made in the sense of, you know, men and women sharing child raising and work in the home, you know, we're nowhere near that right now. So about 85% of women in this country, the primary child care, they're the ones who stayed home during COVID-19 with the kids. And another huge problem is that we've lost so many daycare slots. So staying home with the kids didn't wasn't just because there's no school and the kids have to be supervised while they're doing school on Zoom. It's there wasn't daycare because of COVID. So we don't know what the final results will be. But by some measures, it says it's going to uh, set back gender equity in the workplace 20 years. Of course, I don't know where they get those figures. So that's a lot of it. So I guess I would say... Probably it's not so much about women choosing to be home as circumstances that require that. Of course, there's a lot of women who who want to be home, who don't want to work, and then that's you know a real valuable choice. But it's pretty complicated stuff, as I know that you know. It's very complicated. And I think it's actually worse in terms of 
women's choices than it may seem initially. And then when you get to lower income women, of course, they don't have often don't have a choice, um, especially if it's a one parent family. So there's uh, many men, 85 percent of one parent families in this country, uh, the mother is the parent. So, you know, the mother has to work and often not at a very high paying job, you know, because she also has to do child care and women have to take more time off. The kid needs to go to the doctor, et cetera. So the fact that the women are the primary caregivers has a, a decided effect on their salary. And I don't think it's like you. I want to actually say one more thing. I don't think it's intentionally that, that you know, men think women aren't. Um, intrinsically is valuable. Another thing is women are socialized to be different than men in terms of their aggressiveness or their assertiveness. So when women, a woman goes for a job interview, and, and this is real well documented, this isn't just sort of anecdotal, uh, she tends not to be as assertive. She, uh, you know, whatever salary is offered, you know, she takes it. Women in the workplace are pleasers. And so they'll often work very, very hard without necessarily expecting to be recognized or without demanding to be recognized. It's very hard for them to ask for raises. And so a lot of the problem is the way women have been socialized. So I'm I'm with you. I think, you know, the the women... First off, everywhere I've worked, there's been a glass ceiling. And there may be, you know, the head of HR may be a woman or the head of accounting may be a woman. But in the real power centers, it's in the corporate worlds that I've worked in, it's all men. It's, it is. And a lot of the women that I see that do make it fairly high up there, they, they feel like they have to be manly, right? They have to, quote unquote, manly and they have to they they have to at that level they have to be aggressive and they can't show any emotion or they can't you know they have to they have to repress some of their more i don't know feminine instincts yeah the uh, way they dress for instance yes yes absolutely um and and they just have to present differently than they quote unquote naturally would because they feel like that's what they have to do in order to advance and succeed you know i also and again anecdotally there was one firm where I worked at and there was a, a meeting about laying off people and one one of the women started tearing up a bit and it made the rounds of wildfire. Like like it was this big, here's a, here's a woman, a professional woman who's in a board level discussion and she started crying at the table and it was just, you know, it was just how embarrassing, how terrible, right? And and I think I think those things are terrible. And I and 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 much like, but but I think much like the thing about what you were talking about, where you know they they have a child and they they either lose six or seven months of water cooler time, or even more if they decide to raise it. But I just don't know what you do about that stuff. Like what like you what what do you do about it? Okay, there's lots of stuff you do about it. I want, um, just before I go, I want to give you another example of little tiny things. We could call them microaggressions, I guess, that make it hard for women and are so easily solved. So there's a book called Lean In. I don't know if you've read that or not, but it's a um, about a woman who, you know, is a CEO or not quite a CEO, but in leadership at a, a large company. And she was pregnant. And um she had a hard time, you know, at the end, walking to her car and from her car because big parking lot. And so she asked her boss, can you uh, designate some parking spaces right next to the building, you know, for pregnant women? 
And he did. And so that's a case where, of course, that's easy. Of course, you would want to do that. But it hadn't, you know, no one had thought about it until then. So a couple of things you can do is um, job sharing is a big one, you know, so people don't necessarily work all day. Another one is salary sharing. And there's um, several states where it's illegal. Uh, there's several companies where they stipulate that salaries can't be shared. And so there are states now where that is illegal. So getting that kind of information is really helpful. Oh, yeah, daycare, having daycare at large companies is another important step. Um, so there's a lot of things that can be done, actually. But do you, do you put any stock in the thought that, that where, when it comes to like women aren't as aggressive for, in terms of asking for raises or asking for those parking spaces, so to speak. Do you ascribe any of that to just the biological differences or do you think that's all socially constructed? No, I think that's 100% socially constructed. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, that socialization begins, you know, so, so early from the very beginning. So that would be another thing. In fact, that happens all the time is to have you know, have programming for women about that, bring it to their attention. And the Center for Gender Equity does so many of them. We have conferences for women. We have, you know, lecture series for women pointing out some of the things that they're doing inadvertently that are making them less effective in the workplace. Actually, I forgot to tell you one thing that you asked, you know, what else I've done or sort of my resume. I was a founder, former board member, no longer, of an organization called let's see what we'll call it's called and WCL now they call themselves I'm not on the board anymore but that is an organization here in Portland specifically dedicated for women in the workplace and generally sort of middle management and they come and they talk about some of the impediments to breaking that glass ceiling uh, so there's there's a lot and, and educating women is part of it this woman who wrote lean in Another thing she said that's quite interesting, she's the one who talked about the parking places for pregnant women, she, it's the way women, you know, sit and carry themselves. And so women are often apologizing for themselves and apologizing for their bodies. And in boardrooms or wherever, they sit kind of tight and they're folded up. And men often are, are more sprawled out. And I don't mean in a sort of big old sprawled cowboy way, but, but they gesticulate and their elbows are in the table and that sort of thing. And you kind of have to see the pictures to understand it. But women apologize for themselves a lot. And that is culturally constructed. You know, I don't know if you, this will uh, resonate with you, but have you ever seen a woman like, you know, back into a table and apologize to the table? I've, I've seen, well, again, I, I think you're describing most Canadians, but yes, in, in America, I have, I have seen that. And I do think women I, I in do America, I, I do think it. women in America I apologize more. I apologize to the something I backed into. So, <laughs> But how much like, and, and to the man spreading, you know, situation, I mean, it, it, it's, it's hard for me to think that it's, there isn't some biological component in terms of the thousands of years or where men were the hunter gatherers and women were the caretakers, that somehow that those roles that have been from day one, right? I mean, I don't, I don't think that's in any sort of doubt that the traditional, the, the men ran around and killed stuff and brought it back and the women fed and took care of the kids. I don't know that that's in dispute. But I, I'm I'm struggling to think that there's absolutely no 
remnant of that that comes through in our biology. Oh, yeah. And I think you're right. I think most people would agree with that. Through most, you know, periods in history, uh, you know, women had kids. They they maybe breastfed them. They took care of them. And then another kid would come along. And actually, in ancient Rome, um, it was absolutely necessary for women to be constantly pregnant in order to maintain the population because the um, infant mortality rate was so high. So, it, it was basically unpatriotic of a woman not to have as many kids as she could. But anyway, moving back to our period. Well, in the terms of what you're talking about, yes, certainly biologically, because women give birth, they need they have been in a position where they're um, you know, they're under the dominance of or the they're beholding to men. I agree with that. I don't think, and I'm not a, you know, I'm not a biologist. I don't think that there's anything in our DNA that make women more passive. I don't think so. And and I mean, I'm saying that from some reading, not just off the top of my head, but again, I'm not an expert. I would be very surprised if any, there's any evidence of that. So, right. Maybe passive's not the right example. Um Let's take the STEM pushes that have been going on in school. And, and I have a little bit of peripheral knowledge about uh, STEM. And I, I think the, the attempts to make STEM feel more inclusive for women is a, is a great thing. I work in a field that is a desert when it comes to female participation. And I, I, I think that's a big negative, right, for our, for our space. But from my understanding is that we've been trying really, really hard to girl coding camps and, and all, all these different sort of efforts, and they don't seem to be making much headway. And I guess the question is, is that just because the societal confirmations are, are so strong that the tide is just an irresistible force, or is there something else at work there? Yeah, we just we do all kinds of STEM programming too. Yes, I think you're right. I think that you know it's just that the um, tradition is so strong, um, you know. And then uh, yeah, I I mean I can't add to that. I think you're absolutely right. But traditionally, what we talk about is you know women are more cooperative. Women mm-hmm. are more nurturing, you know, more caring, nurturing. They you know et cetera. And that's certainly true. And I would say it's it's all social conditioning. But wow, that's fabulous. And I think a lot of people, uh, particularly from the second wave of feminism, their position is, yes, that's good. That's better than the way men operate. And, uh, you know, I guess I have to tell you, I'm in that camp is rather than like uh, wanting to see women behave like men in, you know, particularly the workplace, I would like it to be the other way. And it's becoming that way in business. It's, you know, the female model is becoming, you know, adopted to a certain extent. And, you know, you're, the business companies you've worked in, boy, they're shooting themselves in the foot because having women represented in companies isn't just about fairness. It's about competitiveness. Women have different points of view. Women, you know, will understand uh, women better and can, I don't know exactly what you do, but certainly in any kind of marketing, if you don't have women's input, you are really putting in jeopardy your ability to compete. Yeah, I, w- I would argue just at a simpler level, you're you're losing out on talent, right? Yeah. In, yeah. in whatever whatever field it is, you're, you're not allowing better talent 
to rise on its own. You're, you're, you, you're drifting away from the concept of a pure meritocracy, which, which theoretically would serve your firm better. Yeah. It's, it's just not wise about STEM. Um, I'm thinking of the STEM programs that we run and one of the comments, and we have, we have women in STEM professions talking to junior, well, not junior high, generally high school girls. And one of the problems is there aren't very many female models in a lot of the STEM disciplines. And so getting female models is very, very important because it's perceived not to be something girls want to go into. And that's still out there. You know, um, in, in certain social economic educational uh, level, that doesn't exist much anymore. But I think generally speaking, you know, girls don't do math, girls don't do this. And of course, it's not true at all that they can't. But we need more modeling. So I'll do, I have two questions and then and then we'll wrap this up but this is your, your last two chances to embarrass me in my <laughs> my lack of knowledge and perspective oh no you have very good knowledge good oh, instincts no no see now they're gonna think i'm paying you um <laughs> okay so one of one of the thoughts uh because i've done a lot of work with high schoolers and video games and again when when we would set up these those sessions it was you know the video game realm even though supposedly statistics say everybody plays games, men, women, et cetera, you know, there, there's a sociological thought that I've heard recently that says that women just don't want to, they don't see any value investing the time it takes to become really good at X, Y, Z, if that makes sense. So a guy will sit there and he'll play video games day after day, hour after hour, you know, even though he's getting absolutely little or no return on investment, right, from from that. He's just really, really good at Madden and nobody cares but him and his two or three friends, but that's it. And so I'm just wondering sociologically if there's any credence to the thought that one of the reasons that women don't, or or even poker, let's say, right, the, the incredibly disproportionate percentage, because theoretically, I guess, and this is what I guess where I'm going with it, is that there are situations that should be gender neutral, right? Um, the video games, um, poker, uh, chess. And one of the explanations that I've heard of as the reason for lack of female participation is that women don't allow themselves to do completely worthless time sinks as easily as men do. That's interesting. I don't know. I don't have any input on that are thoughts. All I can think about are my nieces and nephews and their kids and, you know, their girls endlessly, endlessly on their phones. I'm not sure what they're doing, but I don't know about that one. Okay. Um, then, then we will end on a very controversial note. One of the bigger ones I think that's going on right now in terms of the, the trans community and gender roles, and that is allowing trans athletes to compete at both, you know, the high school, amateur, and then, you know, Olympic and professional levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because some of the, um, let's see, it would be MTF, right? Specifically, was, right, yeah. right. And so, right, that some of the uh, trans who are women... Uh, would presumably have, you know, the testosterone and the body size and everything that it might seem unfair. Is that the main issue? Yes. And it's quite a minefield. So, yeah. it, oh, yeah, it is a minefield. 
one, I'll tell you, you asked me earlier, what are some things I'm not very interested in or not very good at? And I have to tell you, sports is one of them. I grew up in a family of all girls. I know that seems really sort of gender identifying, but I can't think of a justification for saying they shouldn't compete with people of their same gender. Wait, the new the new gender or, or the original gender? The new gender. Yeah, the new gender, the gender that they actually identify with. I mean, there's all kinds of differences, right, in in endurance and body shape, et cetera, on a given team. And so if we say this person, you know, was was born with you know, with a male body, maybe when this person becomes a she she has certain advantages, but there's always advantages or disadvantages. And I think the harm done to the individual and the harm done to the society, if we say, no, you know, you can't play on the team and we don't recognize, you know, your gender identity, I think that's more serious. But I think if we talked more about it, we could somehow get around that stuff. Um, I, I mean, I think it is so contentious that I don't think we're really looking for solutions. And I'd actually really like to know what you think about that. Well, I think I don't. Here's the thing. I think a lot of times when we say we need to work towards it or we need to figure out a solution assumes that there's always some. And this is the liberal in me. Right. As a liberal, I always think that there's a compromise somewhere. There's some sort of mutually beneficial outcome that we can both work towards. But I don't know if that's really honestly true in all situations. And I when I hear about especially the 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 male to female transitions and them participating, whether it's in high school sports, I just think it's patently unfair. And I think I think it's unfair to the girls that are competing. And I think sometimes when you start talking about when it's for financial rewards or for prestigious awards, or in the, in the case of like many high school girls, you know, talking about scholarships and scholarship potentials, I think there is a real harm there potentially. And I just don't know if the individuals need to compete because I do, and and we and we talked. I think at the beginning, you you acknowledge and you you know there are biological differences, right? There are rather substantial ones, and um, in in specific areas. And I don't know that the it's always about benefits and and rights and and desires to quote unquote be fair. And I think in 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 accommodating the individual. In these cases, we're we're disenfranchising a bit or taking away from the girls who who just want to compete on a quote unquote level playing field. Yeah, it is a tough one, and of course, in some circumstances, the biological differences are mitigated. You know, when we're talking about hormones, but of course, hormones don't come into it often when you're talking about school sports. Well, I I know what you mean, and on this one, I guess you know we truly do disagree because. I don't think you can go through and find out who's trans and then eliminate them. So let's say we're not going to do that. Let's say we're just going to look at people. And someone who kind of looks trans is, is sort of a big girl. That person will eliminate. So the only way to get around that is, you know, to ask people, are you trans? And then I think that's just too tricky and too undesirable. So I, I guess if I'm going to uh, err... I would err on the side of what's better, I think, in the long term socially 
and what's better for the the girl or woman and and say yeah you can play on whatever team well i think i think especially if we're talking about high school sports right um the the person hasn't probably fully transitioned right again just from and and definitely not surgically transitioned and and there's going to be a history there people are going to know this person was raised as a boy and is now transitioning. I do also think that at high level high school sports, they do do blood testing. And, and I'm, I'm guessing there's some way that they could at the same level of invasiveness also do a chromosome test. So I don't, I don't know if we have to rely on an individual's word, but I guess it, it's just a, it, it do the, yeah. It, and and I, I don't know that there's any, yeah, but it seems like you're saying, but then you're not really a, a girl. You know, you think you're a girl, but you're not really. That seems to be the message, and I think that's a dangerous one. Right. I can see that perspective, but they're not a girl. Oh, well, now that's where I would disagree. Um, I feel quite strongly that somebody who... Well, maybe we should say identifies a girl, but somebody who thinks, you know, who a trans person is, in fact, the gender that they claim to be. I think they are literally that gender. Yes, I, I agree. But, body but, out of sync. But, but we're not talking about, I guess, in that instance, we're not talking about gender. We're talking about sex. No, well. I can't, they can't yeah. have a child. Right. So is well, it, is it, I, but neither can I, right. But I can't, I can't t telling them that you're not going to get pregnant. Isn't telling them you're not a girl. Right. Because lots of women can't get pregnant either. I mean, it will never be the same. There, there's going to be some body differences, but then there's body differences within cis women too, all kinds of body differences and unfairness on teams, et cetera. Aren't there a lot, are there a lot of guys who absolutely could not be selected or be successful on a girls sports team? So when we're, when we're talking about men, they're not all the same size and shape and strength, but I think we sort of assume that when we're talking about it's unfair for, uh, you know, male to female for that person to compete in sports. I mean, part of it is the individual abilities of that particular, you know, trans woman. I understand that, but, you know, on, on the scales, and I've done a little bit of research because I think this is a contentious issue and, and I've, I try to research it. And there are a number of studies and, and not just anecdotal, but actually scientific where, and I think there's one website in particular where, the 2016 high school national championships. And if you took the boys from the high school championships, they would have dominated the women at that year's Olympics. So a, a subset of high school boys, you know, at top level high school boys would, would have swept the medals and, and dominated all the positions uh, I think, or close to it for the women in that, for women from around the world in that year's Olympics. And I'm sure there's a lot of other answers to that. But I think biologically that gets back to the thing where the the man in the lowest one or 2% of strength is still in the 95th plus percentile of women. 
if that makes sense. That's true of upper body strength, but that's not necessarily true of lower body strength. Nor is it true of stamina or endurance or or a bunch of other factors. But I, I think what we're talking about, I don't I don't know. I I I just I can't get away from the fact that it comes out down to the rights of the one person who's in a unique position versus the rights of the others that that that, that person is now a member of a group of. I'll be interested to see more research on that because and you say you've done some research and and I certainly you know know that you have and I haven't much but um I wonder really when we learn more how much of a disadvantage it always is I mean the the example you gave is a little bit extreme to say that there's a male team that would be able to dominate a female team so on any given team I mean you know you're not going all of the people won't be the same and you're not going to have all of the team trans. So, I mean, that seems like a little difference, but if we're talking about real world examples, talking about, you know, there's a male team and a female team and they couldn't compete. Um, So I guess, I don't know, but without knowing, my strong prejudice would be to say that a person who is trans is the gender that he or she identifies with or that they identify with and that society ought not tell them in any way that they're not that gender. And I guess work from there. Yeah, and I'm with I'm with you on the gender part. And again, when I said they're not a girl, I guess I should have said, and that's a thing, right? We equate girl with both sex and gender, right? And I and I think there's some unintentional overlap there. But I I also don't know the harm in in being honest about certain things about you know again you're not going to get pregnant. Well, if you have a guy, and he he was a guy, and then he's trans, and and so is trans to a female, and so is a female, but is pretty scrawny, okay, as a lot of men are. Would you allow that woman then to play on the team if there if there doesn't seem to be any uh, advantage, particularly to having that woman play because that woman is really, you know, not was not a big guy or particularly well. I guess you got to have. Me personally, right now, with my level of knowledge, I would I would say no. I would not let them. So it can be consistent. Well, yeah, I think I think that, and I think there's a, there's a reason we divide our sports, right? There there's a reason we divide it, and the reason we divide it is because if it was just an open invite, there would be no girls teams. Right, they would just be boys teams of everything, and that would that would be it, with maybe a, just a handful of exceptions. And again, I think that's ninety five percent physiological and maybe five percent cultural. I don't I don't know where that line is, but I don't. I just I can't. Um, yeah, I I I struggle I struggle with it because I feel for I feel for the girls on the team that are trying to win a medal or trying to get a scholarship or, you know, trying to get that endorsement or, you know, trying to win the race and get that money. And they have to compete with um, a tra- a, a, someone who used to be a biological male. Yeah. And it doesn't work the other way. In other words, if you have, um, you know, someone who's trans male and, uh, you know, should that person be on a male team? Well, it doesn't quite work the same, does it? Because there is a selection process and somebody needs to be, you know, good at it, good, talented at it. So I think uh, if it's sort of a 
traditional woman, you know, was a traditional woman, that person probably would just be selected out. So it's really only an issue uh, going from... Um, but I think I think that's more because of the physiological differences than actual yeah. skill set. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Anyway, it's it's a fun. Well, maybe not not definitely not fun for the people involved, but it's a very interesting subject. And I really we've gone over our time, and but I really appreciate you taking uh, the time to chat. Oh, you're welcome. And I want to do more research on on that issue. Like I said, I'm never drawn to discussions about sports, but I think I will start. You've piqued my interest. And and we didn't even get into how horrible white straight men have it. We never. We yeah, never and we could. We no. could for sure. Yeah. I think. I think. Yeah. I have. I. You know. Maybe we should have talked about that because I have a hard time with that. I have a hard time uh, when I hear about white men moaning about their state in life. And I. I understand the statistics, and I get the suicide rates, and and how much we work, and et cetera, et cetera. But. Anyway, that's a discussion for another day. So maybe hopefully you'll come back later for a round two. I will. Well, thank you, Mike. It's been fabulous talking to you. You bet. You too. Thank you very much, Doctor. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Catch us on Spotify and iTunes and at tiltatwindmills.com.